Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And look, we saw it on January 6th when election lies exploded into violence at the United States Capitol. Well, now the latest outbreak of allegedly politically motivated violence is in New Mexico. A Republican who lost his race for the New York, New Mexico House, excuse me, who tweeted after his defeat that the election was rigged and he vowed to fight it until the day he dies. Now, that person has been arrested on suspicion of orchestrating shootings at the homes of four Democratic elected leaders. Now, no one was hurt, thankfully, but homes were damaged. Shots came through my home right where I had just hours before been playing with my granddaughter. More on all that in just a moment. And plus, we have sources telling CNN about a member of President Biden's inner circle who has now been interviewed by federal investigators. We'll tell you who it is and what would happen. As the Biden administration is now saying that tonight it will continue to cooperate fully with the DOJ probe of presidential records. We also have some major developments tonight on the Massachusetts missing mom, Anna Walsh. Her husband is in custody tonight, facing now a charge of murder, murdering his wife, though her body has not been found. And there is no word yet on what the motive could have possibly been. The DA says more evidence will be disclosed tomorrow. So what might we learn? For more on the developing story in New Mexico, though, I want to bring in CNN senior national correspondent, Kyung Law, who is live from Albuquerque, and CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. I'm glad to have you both. This story is so disturbing, thinking about what could have been. And we've seen, obviously, Kyung, the idea of political grievance more broadly sparking a whole lot of incidents. And now what's happening there, tell me the very latest. What are we learning about this suspect who is now in custody? Well, at the heart of all of this, according to the investigators here in Albuquerque, is election denialism. The police chief here says that the mastermind behind a plot attacking four Democratic officials here in this city is a person who was on the ballot himself, Solomon Pena. He is a, well, he was a Republican candidate for the State House, and he lost. He didn't lose by a little. He lost by a lot. You could more than double the number of people who voted for him, and he still would have lost. But that didn't stop his thinking that somehow he magically won his election, and he was posting on his social media account that he would not concede, that he supported Trump in 2024, and the people he blamed, according to investigators, and who he targeted with accomplices, are four Democratic officials. I want you to take a look at this list. These are four locations. You can see the dates of when these shootings happened. They are spread out over the month. According to law enforcement, this man, Solomon Pena, went and hired people. He sent them text messages. He went and essentially cased these victims' homes, and then he paid accomplices in order to target these people. And as you pointed out, Laura, thankfully, no one was hurt, but investigators say they believe that this all, again, circles down to election denialism and this person who was on the ballot, Laura. I mean, the trauma of what has happened, and and you, you mentioned the idea of casing these houses. He actually went to some of these houses beforehand, right? He wasn't outside, you know, in a sort of a, in, in an innocuous way. He actually went and visited them. 
Yeah, and I think that's really what's changed. If you talk to election officials nationwide, and I talk to a lot of them, especially at the local level, this sort of rage that we normally saw directed at federal officials, it's now being directed to the people who you can actually touch, who you can find. And that is what investigators believe that Pena did. What investigators say is that they've been able to collect some ring video of him showing up at various homes. Uh, There's one county commissioner. He went and rang the doorbell and specifically called out the county commissioner's name. It was actually her daughter's house. But then he went around the corner and he went to the county commissioner, that particular county commissioner, and he spoke with her face to face. And then he went and found another county commissioner who he was angry at, who he believed had rigged the election. I want you to listen to what she says. He came to my house after the election and he's an election denier. He weaponized those dangerous thoughts to threaten me and others causing serious trauma. Um, Yeah, he was saying that the elections were fake, that um, really speaking erratically, I didn't feel threatened at the time, but I did feel like he was, um, you know, erratic. You know, when I spoke with her in person, um, you know, a little earlier this evening, Laura, she was distraught. And you know, she's really, of course, really upset by the fact that her sense of safety has changed. And something else I should mention is that, you know, this this overall problem may not be ending nationally, but at least here in Albuquerque, police say they are zeroing in on Pena. He has a court hearing tomorrow. John, just hearing this and thinking about what could have happened. I mean, the idea of the anger that he expressed, as Kyung was speaking about, face-to-face with some of the people whose homes were then targeted later on. I'm interested in, about the arrest and how they were able to piece this together, especially when you saw that screenshot of the different dates that were um, attributed to each of the different people's homes. And I wonder if there was an attempt to try to make this appear random. I mean, the 4th, the 8th, the 11th, then in January, um, hoping to possibly not have connective tissue be apparent. I wonder what you make of this, John, and the idea of what happened in this arrest and the motivation here and in the climate we're in right now. Well, Laura, I think the motivation was purely intimidation, which is he couldn't reach these people by convincing them, so he wanted to send a message by literally saying, you can't hide anywhere, not even at home. Uh, There is information in the case that at one point, the people that he had doing these shootings, he said, you're shooting too high. You need to shoot lower so that, you know, they, they know that the bullets could have hit them. One of the bullets uh, went into the home of uh, a child who was sleeping and, you know, parts of the ceiling fell down on her bed. Mm. And, you know, it's, uh, it's extraordinarily frightening. But, I mean, one question is, where does a Navy veteran who's running for the State House, you know, put together a crew of shooters to carry this out? And the answer is, while his Navy career was pretty unremarkable, uh, his criminal career was pretty impressive. He was part of a smash-and-grab gang. They used trucks to drive into big-box stores and steal high-end electronics. So as we go forward in this investigation, it kind of makes a whole lot more sense where he could put together a crew to steal cars, do shootings, and help him wage this war of intimidation. I mean, not to mention, John, at that point, I mean, this the idea of intimidation, the idea of making someone feel as though there was no safe recourse, no, no safe haven they could actually go to. We're talking about the basis of somebody believing that they had a right to be elected to office. I mean, years ago, I would say even four or five years ago, perhaps, some would even say three, 
there would be no thought this could continue, this would actually happen here. And yet now we're seeing more and more instances from the DHS bulletins about political grievance and what, what motivates people to now. Why do you think this keeps happening? I mean, is it the idea that people are emboldened and they won't get caught? Or is there a blind spot when it comes to law enforcement's focus? Or is it politics at play? Well, I think what you're watching is a thread that's continuing forward where you see, uh, you know, thousands of people storm the Capitol, but lots of them dressed in tactical gear, military gear, carrying weapons. And then you see an individual storms the home of Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco with a plan to break her legs and hold her hostage and assaults her husband and then fights with police to you know, uh, a thing where in the midterm elections you see people in tactical gear sitting around with rifles at voting locations exercising their Second Amendment rights. So if you weren't expecting this to happen now, I guess you were expecting it to happen next week. This is mm. the direction the vitriol is headed where in the chat rooms I was looking at last week they were saying, we haven't come this far just to come this far. John. Young, thank you so much. I want to bring in Olivia Troy, former Homeland Security and COVID Task Force Advisor to Vice President Pence and also former FBI Deputy Assistant Director Peter Strzok. I mean, just it's very chilling to hear those words. I haven't come this far just to come this far. A phrase that normally is supposed to motivate someone in the direction of doing the right thing. Now being used to talk about how to air out one's grievances in a way that could lead to extraordinary violence. And this is very personal to those who are often targeted in this realm, people who are going about their everyday lives and in their positions and find themselves at the receiving end of vitriol. You've had personal experiences, Olivia, in this area. Um, and I wonder what you make of what's happening in places like New Mexico. Yeah, like it's certainly a worrisome trend. I've certainly lived it. You know, we make life decisions based on how it impacts my family. I make career decisions based on that as well. And I, I think about this every single day. And I think about people like those people in Albuquerque. Some of those people were election officials. They were officiating and certifying election results, rightly so, just carrying out their duties. And now their lives are being threatened. You know, that woman's daughter was, in, was at the house. I think about people like that. But this is a longstanding trend that we're seeing here of rise that's directly related to the lies and the propaganda that's being pushed out there. I mean, people are believing these lies, the election deniers. I mean, look at what happened. I mean, let's go back to Cesar Sayoc. Remember him? He was sending out the pipe bombs to people. He was sending out. Where did that start? Well, it started with the fake news narrative from someone sitting in the Oval Office that was attacking the media, right? And the next thing you know, pipe bombs are being sent to CNN or the, I guess, the demonization of political opponents they were sent to political figures. I mean, this is an endless trend that we're seeing continue. Yeah. And I mean, I, where, does it, where does it end? It ends in violence. I mean, Peter, that's such a fine point you've raised, Olivia, on that idea of sort of the following that thread and where it goes. And if you were to be very reductive, obviously, from fake news narratives to the idea of election denialism, it's about this idea that the government is trying to take away something from you. You know, they think you're dumb. They're trying to lie to you. And people are having a visceral reaction to that, you know, false narrative that's being created. But that also brings people out of the woodwork who are already having grievance-based lives, who are already finding their allies in chat rooms. Is that contributing to the idea of the anonymity, the social media, the idea of finding one's companions, essentially, is that contributing to the emboldening of these 
criminals. I think absolutely it is. I mean, look, that when you look at social media, it is a self-selecting environment. Whatever you mm. choose to believe, whatever you want to see, you can find it. And you can find other people who feel the same way. And unfortunately, in the past, it was typically something in our society where you would see leaders, whether they're political leaders, religious leaders, community leaders, saying this sort of violence is unacceptable. But unfortunately, we've seen over the past several years and continuing to this day, elements within the political elites, particularly on the right, who are encouraging violence. Well, I mean, it's advantageous. Absolutely. Point, and just, literally. I mean, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene just last month in New York was recorded in a conversation saying, if I had led the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, we would have won and we would have been armed. And then what happens today? She's given a spot on the Homeland Security Committee and then on the House Oversight Committee, which is going to be looking at government investigations, investigating the investigators who are looking at January 6th, and rather than calming this sort of sentiment of violence, doing things to stoke that sort of outrage. And again, most people are not going to act on that. But the worry is you do get this very small percentage, but even if it's a tenth of 1%, that's still a wide, a big number of violent people. So how do you, I mean, you're, I guess, intimating the idea of the seeds that can be planted by the information she would have access to or others, and the idea of, you know, every little kernel, they talk about how comedy makes something funny, a kernel of truth is contained in it and it's exaggerated. Well, the idea of false narratives, a kernel of some semblance of truth, and then it's exaggerated or it's exploited in some way that heightens people's awareness about things and and capitalizes on their naivete and ignorance. Olivia, when this happens, I mean, you, you were shaking your head at the idea of these committee assignments, but more broadly, I mean, the truth is, is there a way to actually quell this and stop it? If it's online chatter, if it's beyond, if you can't access it and tangibly hold it? Well, you quell it with facts, but the problem is you have a bunch of elected leaders who aren't interested in talking about the truth. When they're doing, like he said, when you're doing a committee that's going to talk about weaponizing the government, people are taking that in and they're thinking, oh, the government's coming after me potentially, or they're seeing that, right? They're going to investigate possibly COVID, right? They're attacking doctors. I mean, it's a whole revenge thing, right? Where doctors are actually getting threats. I've talked to doctors in Texas. I mean, this is an ongoing thing for them that started during the COVID pandemic with a whole bunch of yeah. COVID disinformation, right? So it pivots. It, it, it's like, and I've, I, you know, I've, I've told people, it's not a matter of when disinformation is coming for you. It's, a matter, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter it's of when. when. Well, well, let me ask you, Peter, how do you investigate this? I mean, how do you do it without being accused of being the thought police? Well, I think you go out and you follow the law. I mean, we have decades and decades upon generations of establishing a criminal justice system, certainly at the federal level, that has clear laws and mechanisms in place to do those investigations in a way that's consistent with the law. And it's important to have accountability. And that's what's so frustrating is that you have DOJ right now, you have prosecutors, you have investigators, you even have judges who are doing their best job that they can to look at what happened on January 6th and elsewhere and where people broke the law to find them accountable and hold them accountable, just like they did for the you know, people who did break the law in the summer of 2020 with the riots around the U.S. Doing that job should not create a congressional committee or other pundits who are out there targeting the people who are trying to maintain the law and order of the United States. And I really worry some of the, again, the extremes of what we're seeing in politics today are specifically trying to do just that. Yeah. They're trying to increase the emotion. They're trying to increase the outrage. They're trying to make it personal. And I'm really worried where it's going to go. Finding those trigger points and leading to violence is really important. Thank you both. I appreciate it. Thank you. 
Well, with the White House in turmoil over the documents investigation, we do tonight have some new CNN reporting about who has been interviewed by federal investigators. We're going to tell you all about it next. Well, tonight, the Biden White House is grappling with the discovery of classified documents as President Biden's at his former private office, of course, also his Wilmington home, and his press secretary saying the president has confidence in his team, has confidence in what they're doing and handling of the response, of course. And a top official insisting the administration is cooperating fully with the DOJ's investigation. Joining me now, CNN's chief White House correspondent, Phil Mattingly. Phil, I'm eager to talk to you about this because there are signs the White House is shifting strategy as this crisis is continuing to intensify. What's going on? Is there truly a shift or recognition that they didn't handle it right the first time? I think there's an understanding that they've been unsteady for the last eight to nine days, and maybe that's putting it charitably. And to some degree, what they have realized, or at least what they've started to coalesce around, is the idea that there are things they can and should do as the special counsel investigation really starts to kick into high gear to try and address at least the public perception of this issue. Now, that does not mean they are going to engage on the myriad of questions that are still out there regarding how these documents ended up in the Biden think tank in the first place, in the president's uh, personal home in the first place, uh, or any any of the questions surrounding the two months while this review was ongoing before it became public knowledge. But it does mean that they will make very clear that while they will not answer questions and they will fully cooperate, they believe they have a pretty attractive foil in House Republicans who have launched two of their own investigations into that matter. Over the course of the last two days, you've seen White House officials really ramp up, kind of go on offense when it comes to attacking House Republicans for investigating this matter, particularly those House Republicans that were not willing to investigate former President Donald Trump's uh, own classified documents investigation that's been underway, trying to kind of coalesce around the idea that this is a political fight to have as well as long as the investigation and the legal battle are under way. While they will not deal with the legal battle, while they will not address the legal battle, and they will maintain that they are going to fully cooperate with that ongoing legal matter, when it comes to the politics of this issue, they say two things. One, they are very willing to attack Republicans head on when Republicans go after the president, but also they are going to try and maintain some semblance of business as usual. You've not seen the president diverge from his schedule. You've not seen the president move away from any of the issues that he was planning to talk about before all of these issues came to light. Of course, the wild card here is they don't know necessarily if anything new is going to come out at any time in the future. That was certainly a problem they faced in that first week here. And officials acknowledge they don't know if more investigation or more searches will come uh, to part. They also don't know if more documents will come to light. But at this point in time, they feel like they've at least steadied things, at least compared to where they were last week. I mean, it's a it's quite a change. And you're right. It's only been really a week of having even had this story emerge, although this happened back in November, the first realization of it. Phil, thank you so much for this. You know, um, I want to bring in now uh, CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez, who has new reporting tonight on this story, and senior law enforcement analyst Andrew McCabe, the former FBI deputy director. Well, Evan, let me start with you, because you heard the reporting from Phil and the idea the words he used are unsteady. At first, they weren't engaging. Um, They're having a political response to the House Republicans who are going after it and what they're doing. But You have some new reporting here tonight because in an initial review of 
the handling of the classified documents, they've now in- interviewed a personal attorney of President Biden. Is that right? That's right. This is a longtime uh, attorney for uh, President Biden, political campaign attorney. Uh, his name is Pat Moore, and he's based out of Boston. And he was among the people who was uh, at the Penn Biden Center, the private office that President Biden was using during the, the, the Trump years. And this is where the first set of documents were found uh, back in November. And, you know, as part of that, uh, that initial review that was done by the U.S. attorney in Chicago, John Lausch, the FBI, uh, you know, was doing an assessment. They interviewed uh, Pat Moore, as well as a number of other people who were involved in the moving, moving of, of the documents. And in the case of Pat Moore, you know, he was there when they found these initial documents. Now, among the things that uh, we've learned is that, you know, they immediately, obviously, returned those documents that they found, the classified documents, to the National Archives. And our Jamie Gangel also reports that, you know, they basically, out of an abundance of caution, uh, took a bunch of boxes, even if they didn't have classified information, decided to return it, give it to the National Archives, saying, here, take a look at these. And then as a, as a, as a last measure, uh, Pat Moore had had some documents, including uh, personal speeches and some reference materials taken to his office back in Boston. He had the, uh, the, uh, the National Archives come and retrieve those documents. You know, what you're getting a picture of there is, you know, a Biden team that is, you know, I think, trying to draw a contrast with the way Trump has handled his own documents issues, right? And they're trying to draw a picture of cooperation. Now, as you know, uh, they have a new special uh, counsel who's mm-hmm. going to be doing an investigation. Uh, they may need to come back and interview some of the same people. We know that the initial interview with Pat Moore, for instance, was not done with a 302, you know, as you know, right. uh, which is the way these, these, uh, these interviews are usually uh, memorialized. That's an important point, the idea of not necessarily reinventing the wheel, Andrew, but with a special counsel now assigned to oversee all this, there might be a shift in the way that the interviews are even approached, maybe going back to fill in some gaps, maybe even the first time having questions. I wonder what sort of questions do you anticipate the investigators now asking? Because everyone keeps saying, well, you know, it's, it, there's a stark contrast and Biden is cooperative and he's saying he's cooperative. Investigators, obviously, part of their nature and job is to be skeptical, even with a statement like that. What are the questions they might be asking at this time? Sure. So you can imagine that the agents who were working under Mr. Lausch were really trying to get their hands around the big picture and the basics of what happened. What the folks who are now working for Rob Herr, the, the special counsel, will do is li- will likely reapproach any of those witnesses that have already spoken and really give them a very in-depth interview to try to get the entirety of the scope of their knowledge of and involvement with these documents, whether it's from the office or the house, it's going to first be, you think of it as chain of custody type of questions. They're going to say to somebody who was present when the documents were discovered in the Penn Biden office, uh, they're going to say, okay, where were you uh, in relation to the closet where the documents were found? What did they look like? What were they stored in? Was that storage container sealed with tape or with other materials? And, you know, who lifted it out of the closet? What did you do next? You know, where did you then keep these documents until the National Archives folks came to retrieve them? All down to the details of every movement involving those things. And then broader scope, 
people who were in that office who can talk to you about the scope of people who had access to the office over time, people who can talk about President Biden's uh, habits in terms of how often was he at the office and when he was there, where did he sit? And did you, mm. for, did you ever, did he ever ask you to get things out of the closet for him or thing, things of that nature? So it's going to be very broad uh, and, and specific and probably very uh, wide in scope. You know, speaking of the scope of this, Evan, you know, um, the questions, of course, are going to be about who had access, but who also accessed it, right? right. There's, a, there's a distinction between who had access and who actually accessed it. And there's a lot of talk about Hunter Biden, who right. was already a topic of conversation, you know, even before President Biden won the election, let alone now. Um, there, We know that there are is a Republican-led Congress that's looking into Hunter Biden and investigations, but there's still the DOJ investigation. We can't forget about that. So where does that DOJ probe into the Hunter Biden laptop and beyond, where does that actually stand right now? Yeah, it's a bit of a mystery. Um, the, the, the one thing we know is that the uh, U.S. attorney in Delaware, who is a Trump appointee who was held over to handle this, is now essentially the decision maker. He is going to be the one who makes a decision as to whether to go forward with uh, charges that would include uh, tax, uh, tax issues that, that, that Hunter Biden, tax violations that Hunter Biden is alleged to have had as well as a uh, charge related to a gun. Uh, Hunter Biden describes that he was obviously using drugs during a period in which he went and bought a gun. And and when you buy a gun and you fill out the the forms, the background check forms, you have to attest that you were not addicted to drugs. He has since in his memoir and in interviews has said that he was. So that is clearly, or you know, it would seem uh, some kind of a violation. So again, those are the two things that we know investigators have honed in on. Now, there could be other things, but, you know, the Republicans are asking a, a much broader set of questions, uh, including uh, about business ventures that never got off the ground and whether his father, whether his father, uh, 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 certainly uh, President Biden, had any business interests in some of the things that Hunter was involved in and other members of the family. Important to think about that scope of it. Andrew, what's your reaction to the DOJ investigation and probe? I mean, we're hearing bits and pieces. There's obviously been complaints about have people covered this story enough? Or is is Hunter Biden or the Biden family getting a pass in a variety of ways? It's become a politically charged issue, even if there is not a lot of meat on the bone to go and work with. What do you say? Well, you know, I I can't say much about the politics. I mean, that's likely to kind of continue fanning the flames, creating issues maybe where none really exist for the purpose of political advantage. That's that's how these things uh, seem to work out on that side. But on the legal side, I can tell you that if the Department of Justice and the FBI have taken a hard look at this and what they're walking away with or considering towards the end of the investigation, if that's if that's where we are, is a what seems like a fairly minor uh, false potential false statement charge and some tax issues. That is a far, far distance from where the primary concern from several of the legislators on the Hill uh, is still focused. That is, um, you know, night and day from a case based uh, on political corruption issues or uh, illegal um uh, you know, business ventures and influence peddling and things of that nature. And let's keep in mind also, Laura, that so many of the things that people think of in that lane of, let's say, influence peddling, um, 
those practices are unsavory, possibly unethical, not things that we want associated with our political leadership, but oftentimes not specifically illegal. It takes you back to those political corruption statutes, which we all know are very tied to the idea of being able to prove in court a specific quid pro quo. Uh, you know, the acceptance of benefit in, for, in return for doing some official act is generally the way that's framed. And those are tough cases to make. So it sounds like the government could be pretty far from what people initially thought they would find in this case. I mean, when you mentioned quid pro quo, I think everyone remembers the first impeachment and the idea of the difficulties, even, even the impeachment managers and being able to try to make a case, obviously outside of the court of law. But we'll continue to follow what's happening here. It's important to know how all of this will resolve and in what capacity we'll follow the story. Thank you so much, both of you. Speaking of the criminal system and from really sad news happening, we've been all following along the story of the missing Massachusetts mother of three. And after several pieces of what can only be described as grim evidence, now Brian Walsh is facing a murder charge. Remember, he was facing a essentially misleading investigators charge before. Now it's a murder charge for the death of his wife, Anna Walsh, the very latest in that investigation is next. Well, there's been a major development tonight in the case of missing Massachusetts mom, Anna Walsh. Her husband, Brian, has now been charged with her murder. He will be arraigned on the murder charge tomorrow. And the police investigation has turned up possible evidence, including a bloody knife in the couple's home, as well as a hacksaw and apparent bloodstains at a trash collection site. Sources also say that Walsh searched the Internet for information on how to dismember and dispose of the body of a 115-pound woman. CNN's John Miller is back with me now. Truly disturbing to think about all that's happening right now and the developments at play. You know, what is the probable cause that authorities seem to have today that would go from the misleading investigator's charge to murder. So, Laura, I think it's what happened in between, which is with the misleading. They told us that there, you know, in their court documents, that there was blood found in the basement, that there was a bloody knife found in the basement, that he deceived them about where he was and what he was doing. And then they found out where he really was and what he was doing, buying cleaning supplies and so on. If you combine that with what has happened since, which is another location, a trash transfer station, additional physical evidence, the scientific piece of putting those two things together and making DNA matches and uh, things like bone fragments and whatever other evidence they might have collected is what brings these things together from misleading to a warrant for his arrest for murder. And as we sit here tonight, we're not aware that a body has been found of this woman on a Walsh, and yet they are proceeding with a murder charge nonetheless. So, Laura, they're, they're relying on two important things, maybe three. Number one, uh, the circumstantial evidence. If this is not the story, take a look at the story he gave. Which one holds up? Two, the scientific evidence. What is the Massachusetts State Police Lab able to bring together in front of a jury to say this would be statistically impossible to be otherwise? And three, precedent. You know, this DA's office is the one that had the other case, the first one in Massachusetts history, where they convicted someone back in uh, 2003 for a 1998 murder where they never recovered a body. Another husband who killed another wife. 
you know, thinking about all that in context, I do wonder at tomorrow's hearing, are we going to get some idea of a motive here? I mean, not that there is a justification, which is always an interesting notion, but the motive that might be described in any of the documents, do we have a sense that's coming? So we're going to see a charging document that, that is probably going to lead us into the science portion. I doubt we're going to see a motive. I think if we see a motive, and as a former prosecutor, you know they don't need one to prove it, mm-hmm. but a jury's going to want one. If we see a motive, I think we're going to see that unfold at trial. Well, we'll have to follow along, and it's happening up tomorrow as well. Again, a mother of three, and we're learning tonight her husband has been charged with murder, been missing since the new year. John, thank you so much for the updates. I appreciate it. Well, we also know that multiple schools in Virginia, did you realize that they've allegedly been failing to give some students their National Merit Scholarship recognition, that before they actually have to apply for college and they submit them, Well, now the state's attorney general is launching an investigation over what he says is a practice of targeting Asian Americans. We'll explain more next. A Virginia school district is under fire this week. The Fairfax County public school system is accused of allegedly failing to notify students of their National Merit Scholarship recognition in a timely manner. Now that district is under investigation by the Attorney General's Office in Virginia for unlawful discrimination in violation of the Virginia Human Rights Act. The governor, Glenn Youngkin, weighing in on the incident over the weekend, accusing the district of choosing equity over merit. They have a maniacal focus on equal outcomes for all students at all cost. This overarching effort for equal outcomes is hurting Virginia's children. And it's hurting, even worse, the children that they aspire to help. We have reached out to the district for comment. I want to bring in Virginia Attorney General Jason Miares to the conversation. Welcome, Attorney General. I'm glad that you're here. This might not be an obvious connection for some people to think about the idea of failing to tell the commended students about their recognition and national merit status, and then having a connection for a violation of the Virginia Human Rights Act. What is the correlation here? Well, this is what we know. We know that Fairfax County Public Schools hired an equity consultant, uh, paid them about $455,000 for about nine months of work. And one of their recommendations to the school district was equal outcomes for every student without exception. That's their words, not mine. And that included a directive that said to get to these equal outcomes, it may mean treating students purposefully unequally. And so what we've seen is about over 70% of these national merit accommodations have gone to Asian American students. And I wanna be clear, there are two branches of one investigation. The start of this investigation actually was the admission policy at Thomas Jefferson High School. It's a magnet school. You have to apply. We saw they went to a new equity-based admission standard, which led to uh, close to a 20-point drop of enrollment in Asian American students. And I heard so many complaints from parents uh, that their children, they felt, were being discriminated against. I had one parent say, my daughter's done everything right since the first grade, but she's being denied her dream of attending Thomas Jefferson High School not because of anything she's done, but simply who she is, because she's Korean American. And I think that just goes against all of our belief in our society of 
We believe in the quality of opportunity. I think that's so important. And for so many of these students, English is not even the primary language spoken at home. And I know as a child of an immigrant, my mother fled Cuba, penniless and homeless. Education is the doorway to the American dream. It breaks my heart that some of these students haven't gotten this proper recognition and all the scholarship opportunities that possibly comes with it, the National Merit Award. Certainly, the National Merit Award, one in which many students would love to have a feather in their cap and to express it. And I understand the concerns you've raised about notions of equity and there being a tension between what the description is. But I do wonder, in terms of the human rights element of it, what is the act that has happened in relation to the commendation status in particular that has led you to have an investigation into that's being related to the admissions process more broadly? What is that connection? Well, you're not allowed to deny anyone a benefit uh, under the Virginia Human Rights Act simply because of they are their racial or their ethnic background. And for the so, real world consequences So I, 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 I don't want to cut you I'll off be, for a second, you, but hold on. I, want, I, don't yeah. want, I want to make sure I'm clear for the audience's sake as well. So the connection, the, the statement is essentially there is some notion that this was an intentional act to fail to alert these students that they had the commendation? Yeah, well, we know from the public reporting that one of the parents of a child that notified the school, why didn't you notify? They said, we didn't want other students to have their feelings hurt. And the real world consequences of this is we know of at least one Virginia college that says, you get to go to attend our school tuition free. It's a private school uh, if you're a national merit accommodation recipient. All we require is a, is a certificate. The principal is in charge of providing that notification to the students, and that's a value of close to $100,000. And I can tell you, as somebody, I worked all four years of college, how are you gonna pay for college is much more scary in many ways than which college you get into. And so the idea that we have, by one estimate, close to 800 different scholarships available to those that are these National Merit Award recipients, and they weren't even notified, they didn't even have the chance to apply I have to tell you, at a time with skyrocketing student debt, I think it's pretty pretty noteworthy these schools didn't notify the students, and that's what we're trying to determine. I do have a statement from the superintendent of the district as well, and, and they say that um, the current understanding around the delay in notifying students, and I'll read it for you, our current understanding is that the delay at, obviously, Thomas Jefferson High School this fall was a unique situation due to human error, but we will leave it to our investigative review to draw any final conclusions. What do you make of the idea of this being um, initially spoken about as human error? How does that play into your investigation, and do you have some skepticism to that point? Well, we're going to find out. That's why we're doing the investigation. We know that the initial report was this was limited to one high school, and it was human error. Uh, at this one high school. Now we find out that in Fairfax alone, it's over seven high schools uh, have been subject to this. We know it's also happening in Loudoun County. And apparently this has happened for several years. And so that's why we're investigating. You know, I'm very interested in the outcome of the investigation, the idea that if this was an intentional act to try to deny a student of that opportunity, that's very telling, as is the greater conversation just talking about, about overall admissions and enrollment, an issue the Supreme Court is trying to grapple with as we speak as well. Really important conversation. We'll follow this story. Thank you so much. And the Golden State Warriors, well, they were at the White House. And it was the first time since clashing with the former president, Donald Trump. And the team, well, they didn't hold back in weighing in on several key political issues.
Today, President Joe Biden welcomed the Golden State Warriors to the White House, celebrating their 2022 NBA championship. Now, this was the first White House visit since a high-profile clash, you may remember, with former President Donald Trump. He disinvited them after Steph Curry criticized him over his attacks on black athletes during the national anthem. And while the visit was about celebration, some came not only to play, but with something to say. Superstar Steph Curry said that this about Biden and the return of Brittany Griner. Uh, a great opportunity for us uh, from the basketball community to thank um, President Biden and his staff uh, for all their hard work and diligence on uh, getting Brittany Griner home. Uh, it was a big part of uh, our, our basketball family and it uh, means a lot to know that she's here and home safe with her family. And head coach Steve Kerr spoke out after taking part in a roundtable on gun violence and gun safety with senior White House staffers. I think uh, we have a a huge issue in this country, obviously, um, with gun violence um, on many, many fronts. And um, it needs to be addressed globally. It's not uh, one group of people or uh, one sector of society. This is an issue that affects everybody. Indeed, it does. Also ahead, George Santos, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar. What's the connective tissue? Probably not names you would expect to see get committee assignments in Congress, perhaps, except they all now have them. So what does this say about how this Congress will function? House Republican leaders giving freshman New York Congressman George Santos not one, but two committee assignments, despite the countless lies he told during his campaign. He's joined some of his other controversial colleagues as well, who also have new committee assignments tonight. We'll talk about all that and what it tells us about Speaker McCarthy's hold on the GOP, or maybe their hold on him. But I want to bring in Democratic Congressman Richie Torres of New York. He is one who has been calling on the Federal Election Commission to launch an investigation into Santos over allegations that he broke campaign finance laws. Congressman, thank you for being here this evening. This is certainly um, a congressman and a colleague who has a lot of questions surrounding him. I wonder, I mean, you have questions about, in particular, the more than $700,000 that he seems to have spent on his campaign. Why do you ask the FEC to investigate this in particular? Well, of all the 535 members of Congress, both in the Senate and the House, there's no one who poses a greater threat to the integrity of Congress than George Santos. We know he's lied about every aspect of his life, but even worse than his lying is his possible law-breaking. And for me, the $700,000 question is, where did all the money come from? You know, a decade ago, George Santos was a wage earner at a dish call center, accumulating thousands of dollars in debt and facing repeat evictions. As late as 2020, he reported a salary of $55,000. And then miraculously, in 2021 and 2022, he became a multimillionaire. He claims to have earned millions of dollars from clients, yet he disclosed the names of none of those clients on his congressional disclosure as required by federal law. And that's why I filed an ethics complaint against George Santos for falsifying his financial disclosure. But we're finally getting a clearer sense of exactly how the money flowed through various ent- entities ultimately into the coffers of the Santos campaign. 
You know, for so many who are looking at this issue, Congressman, they're wondering whether there's a mechanism to have somebody who has been accused of lying, who's admitted to lying, who has the allegations you're speaking about and the questions you've raised, to have them no longer be a part of Congress. And as you said, you call him one of the biggest dangers to our democracy, but also to our national security. There's a distinction there, the integrity of Congress and also national security. On that latter point, what is the nature of your concern there? Look, when you're a member of Congress, you receive security clearance by virtue of your position. Uh, So George Santos has access to sensitive information, um, and he's about to sit on the small business community, which is an important committee. It oversees uh, the PPP program, the Payment Protection Program, which is one of the largest government programs the federal government has ever enacted. And can a fraud like George Santos be trusted to root out rampant fraud in the PPP program? The answer is obviously no. And keep in mind, the House Republicans have defunded the Office of Congressional Ethics at a time when George Santos threatens to corrupt the institution from within. Well, you're talking about, obviously, and the concerns you've raised. I mean, so many are sharing these similar concerns about the security clearance, about the access, the idea that he was even placed on a committee was surprising to some. There was concern and question whether McCarthy would ultimately seat him as a member of Congress on a committee or essentially render him legislatively impotent in terms of being able to be on these committees. But there is a, I want to play for you what Congressman Barry Loudermilk had to say because there was a question my colleague Manu Raju asked him about having him placed on a committee. Listen to this. He hasn't committed a crime. He hasn't been indicted on anything at this point. And in this country, you're innocent until proven guilty. So mm-hmm. we're going to uh, treat him like any other member and, you know, keep an eye on it. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, you know, there's been precedent in the floor. Like Steve King lost his committee assignments after those controversies. What's different here? Well, I think it's the nature of uh, what was said. You know, it was feeling like some of the things others have said in the past were condemning of other people. I mean, Basically, he said some things about himself. Do you buy that distinction, Congressman? We know that George Santos defrauded his way to the United States Congress. He has no business being in Congress, let alone on a committee. And keep in mind that there's a disconnect between local Republicans who have heard directly from voters and who have called on George Santos to, to resign, whereas Republican leadership, particularly Speaker McCarthy, needs every vote that he can get. And he needs George Santos to remain in power. So Speaker McCarthy and House Republican leadership have no incentive to drain the Santos swamp in Washington, D.C. Congressman Torres, thank you so much for your time this evening. Of course. I want to turn now to former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh, CNN political commentator Karen Finney, and national political reporter Eva McKend as well. I want to pick up on that latter point, Karen, because, I mean, the idea of Congressman Loudermilk, the distinction being that, well, one was talking about someone else, and the other was talking about himself. So there's a distinction there. Uh-huh. He's talking about himself not as an insult. He's talking about himself and, and professing to be something other than he actually was. What is the distinction that's happening here? There's not a distinction, actually. The distinction is political convenience, as far as as near as I can tell. The other point about one of the things that makes him a danger to national security is, given how many lies he's told and these financial entanglements, 
he's also very vulnerable to being blackmailed. And that's one of the things that, you know, constantly, you know, when you go for security clearance, that's actually one of the things they look at is what your financial situation is, because they want to know if you could, if you are somebody who could be vulnerable to being blackmailed. And look, the other thing that's surprising, I mean, this is a moment where Kevin McCarthy actually could have shown some spine, in my opinion, and, and said, you know what, we're going to let the ethics committee process and these legal cases play themselves out. And when, as they're doing so, we're going to not seat you on a committee. That actually, now what he's done is he's given us a talking point every single time to talk about the lack of seriousness of this Congress and the fact that clearly Kevin McCarthy has such a narrow margin that he had to put a, a liar uh, and put him on a committee in charge of lots and lots of dollars. In fact, I, I, on that very notion, I mean, and somebody I wish, you know, we were, I, I wanted to hear more from about this area was Senator Mitch McConnell. I've been wondering what he had to say about the idea of the spine you're speaking about. Here he is. Hopefully, McCarthy was not so weakened by all this that he can't be an effective speaker. I'm pulling for him. I think he was the right guy for the job. And um, I'm hoping it's going to settle down and work out well. I mean, maybe weakened by the concessions, Joe, or weakened now to Karen's larger point. You know, if you not only give away the keys to the castle, but now you're saying, hey, listen, I don't care who's inside. Is that a problem? This is who he is, Laura. And, and I think we all make a big mistake. And we should, because it's good TV. We focus on Santos. We focus on Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gozar being put on the oversight committee. We focus on the 10 to 20 super crazies but Kevin McCarthy has an, has an entire caucus full of election deniers, an entire caucus full of January 6th sympathizers. Hold on. I'm having a problem hearing you, apparently, in the, in the audience. And you're saying something really important. So I'm going to get your mic changed. Okay. And I'm, not, I'm giving you the nod, not because I'm like, yes, that's yes. a great point. I'm going to turn to <laughs> Eva, who I wanted to hear from as well. We're going to come right back to you, Joe, on this point and switch it up. But Eva, I mean, on this point, the idea of the vulnerability and how this looks. I mean, Washington, D.C. and politics more broadly run on a business in some respects of optics. Does this look right for Republican voters? Listen, I think that there is this situation basically where McCarthy probably felt as though he had no choice, but it does seem curious, right? Uh, Congressman Israel, by I think some metrics, maybe was the accusations against him were were not even <laughs> as bad as the territory that Santos is in. But, you know, this is this is where things are. We know that that political fates change pretty dramatically. And clearly they think that Santos is someone that they are going to need for quite some time. I want to come back oh, to you. Oh, also, I do want to mention this idea of like top tier committees right. and committees that aren't as important. I think that that characterization is really problematic. Yeah. If you are sitting on small business, if you are uh, overseeing science and space, you know, those things are equally as important, too. Oh, of you course. Know? So uh, this idea that, oh, we're just going to give them lower tier committees committees and they don't matter, they're not consequential, I think is really, really problematic. It's a problem overall. I mean, Main Street, oftentimes more important to our economy than Wall Street for so many reasons in this in this world. And I have to ask you on this and come back to you. I mean, you mentioned the idea of Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and her committee assignments as well. I mean, talk about the importance of this, because she is now going to be on the Homeland Security Committee, which was formed, just for the audience's sake, after the 9-11 attacks, but she has pushed conspiracy theories 
in the past, even surrounding 9-11. And I think it's a really important point to underscore that this is the committee that she'll have access to and information now on that very notion. In fact, I want to play for the audience here some of the comments that she has said in the past about 9-11. But we had witnessed 9-11, right? We had witnessed 9-11, the terrorist attack um, in New York and the plane that Uh, crashed in Pennsylvania, and the so-called plane that crashed into the Pentagon. It's odd. There's never any evidence shown for a plane in the Pentagon. But anyways, I won't, I'm not going to dive into the 9-11 conspiracy. (laughs) So-called were the words she used. The committee formed because of 9-11, and now a person sits on that committee who questioned our government's involvement in 9-11. I mean, that perfectly, though, Laura, crystallizes where my former party is. Marjorie Taylor Greene is not Republican fringe. We, we were talking about it before. We focus so much on Greene and Gosar and Boebert, as we should, because they're crazy. But Kevin McCarthy has an entire caucus of election deniers. Um, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar are election deniers, and they're on the oversight committee, and that's horrible. But good luck trying to find some Republican to put on that committee who's not an election denier. That's really McCarthy's And there's problem. all this discourse now about the great transformation, you know, of Congresswoman Green. And I'm sorry, I don't really see mm. it as such. I more see it as the transformation of the Republican Party mm. and what Republicans sort of view as acceptable. But it's also, let's just take a step back. Kevin McCarthy put the national security of the United States of America on the table as a chit to be bargained with, bartered with, for his speakership. That's what he did, because Marjorie, because the Homeland Security Committee also does um, election security, mm-hmm. and she's an election denier. Marjorie Taylor Greene also has said that there is a Jewish cabal that has their own laser, and that's actually what started the California wildfires in 2018. And this woman will now have a security clearance and have access to sensitive information about our country. Somebody who thinks there are, who doesn't believe in 9-11, as you said, and I think you made a great point, Joe, that, you know, how do you even find, do a committee without election deniers? You now actually have four on this oversight committee. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you think about the idea, you make it, I'm going back to your point, Eva, the idea of the importance of each and every committee. It's not just about who's on it, but what information they have access to, and then what could be possibly relayed. You talk about Homeland Security in particular, you talk about what could actually make its way into the public sphere in ways it never ought to be. Are those concerns ruminating among Democrats right now on the Hill? I think so. I'm really curious to see what becomes of the House Oversight Committee chaired by Congressman James Comer. I've actually known him a long time because I used to cover Kentucky's congressional delegation. When he was a ranking member of that committee, he would often talk about how there were areas of bipartisanship where he could work with Democrats, specifically on the area of postal reform, that there was room for Democrats and Republicans to work together on oversight. I haven't heard him say that as much uh, since he is, uh, became uh, the chair, uh, but, but we'll have to see what, what eventually becomes of that committee. It's Hill, Hill and many others will have awesome power, the power to subpoena, and then, of course, to hold these high-profile committee hearings. The power to subpoena, to have the committees, and the responsibility to protect and safeguard. Nothing to sneeze at. Thank you so much, you guys. We do have investigations continuing, including around documents, and it may be the Biden administration's biggest unforced error to date. So what is going on in the White House now? 
And will anybody on the team become a scapegoat or take the fall? As criticism continues to mount over the Biden administration's handling of the discovery of classified documents at the president's former private office and at his Wilmington home, a top official saying tonight the White House will continue to cooperate and fully with the DOJ's investigation. And a Biden aide also saying the president has, quote, confidence in his team. Joining me now is Chris Whipple, author of the brand new book, The Fight of His Life, Inside Joe Biden's White House. What a timely book to have right now, Chris. A lot of people are looking at this and wondering about what they're calling this an unforced error in some respects. But you've got the press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, saying that there is confidence from the Biden administration. In fact, I want to play for you a little bit about what she had to say and get your reaction. I can tell you this, that the president and his team uh, rightfully took action when they learned that the documents existed. They reached out to the archives. They reached out to the Department of Justice. His mood has been very clear. I I saw him this morning. He's very focused. I was with, I traveled with him this weekend. He wants to make sure that he's continuing and we are continuing to deliver for the American people. Well, she talks about his mood and his um, his uh, attitude about the matter. In your time with the president, how do you think he's handling this crisis behind the scenes? Well, I think he's frustrated. You know, it hasn't been the White House's finest hour by any means. It's a drama they really didn't need. But in some ways, you know, it doesn't surprise me. I spent the last two years speaking with almost every member of Biden's inner circle. And while this White House may look like a fairly well-run machine on the outside, it turns out there's a lot more drama behind closed doors than you might imagine. And I write about it in my book, the disagreement over the Afghanistan withdrawal, tensions between uh, the president and and Kamala Harris, uh, a fraught relationship between Joe Biden and his Secret Service. Um, There's a lot of that playing out behind the scenes, Um, again, even though things may look smooth on the outside. I think in this case, what we're seeing is a, is a real tension, a disagreement between communications people and the lawyers. The lawyers don't want any information out there. And, um, and I think people like Corinne Jean-Pierre would like to be more forthcoming. But it's a tricky balancing act to, to, uh, to pull off. I'm really intrigued by what's going on behind the scenes. You're talking about what appears to be obviously on the surface and the well-oiled machine versus what you're writing about in your book. And to that point, I mean, you you reveal in the book not only that there are some tensions between him, him and, of course, um, the vice president of the United States, but, but also with his secret service. There's some suspicion there. You write in light of January 6th, it wasn't just MAGA writ large that bothered Biden. He felt its influence all too close to home in his Secret Service detail. Lately, the Secret Service had looked both incompetent and politicized. Wary of his own Secret Service agents, the president no longer spoke freely in their presence. That's pretty stunning to think about somebody who knows that he has to entrust his own life with them, has some distance. 
It was stunning to me when, when I found this out in the course of my reporting. You know, it is a fraught relationship between Joe Biden and some of his Secret Service detail, and it's sort of the most dramatic close-up example of the one thing that has surprised Joe Biden more than anything else it, during his presidency, and that is the staying power of Trumpism. Uh, it's, he thought that, uh, that this, this would fade over time. He thought he had a mandate. He thought he, he could put it in the rearview mirror uh, with, you know, seven million more votes than uh, Donald Trump in 2020. But it, it's, it stayed despite Trump's uh, troubles. And of course, um, he, you know, he, he saw it within some of his, um, with some of his Secret Service detail. Uh, it's a much bigger uh, group than he used to, uh, used to have. And uh, it, while it may not be surprising, because after all, law enforcement is full of deeply conservative people, um, it, it still, it bothered him. And it bothered him because, you know, it seems to me that a president has a right not only to be protected by his Secret Service detail, but also to have his secrets kept. And I'm not sure Joe Biden thought they would. Talk to me about the relationship with him and um, the vice president, Kamala Harris. I'm intrigued by your book on this note in particular. Yeah, this is really a fascinating, complicated relationship. There's no question that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris had a very, they really had a warm bond uh, in the beginning. They were thrown together by COVID. They were in meetings together all the time. Uh, Joe Biden uh, valued her input and gave her important national security roles. Um, I tell the story about how on the eve of the invasion of Ukraine, she met privately with Volodymyr Zelensky and warned him that the Russians were coming not only for Ukraine, but for him and his family. Um, so he gave, her, he gave her important assignments, but they ran into trouble over her portfolio. A, a number of her allies were complaining that the Northern Triangle and voting rights were just mission impossible. And then word got back to the president that the second gentleman, Doug Emhoff, had been complaining about this around town. And that really didn't sit well. So it's a, it's a fascinating, complicated relationship. Well, the book certainly explores that and so much else. And of course, there are a lot of things happening right now in the White House the, and how one is able to grapple. Maybe there'll be some insight into how he will and the administration will go about dealing with what's happening right now. Chris Whipple, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers wide receiver Russell Gage has been released from the hospital after he was injured on the field in last night's game against the Cowboys. We have all the details on it next. Tampa Bay Buccaneers wide receiver Russell Gage is out of the hospital tonight. He suffered a concussion near the end of Monday's NFL wildcard playoff game. He was swarmed by medical staff after struggling to stand up on the field. He was tweeting earlier today, I appreciate all of the texts, calls, thoughts, and prayers you have all expressed towards my family and I. I just wanted to let you all know that I'm doing great and in great spirits. Thank you. And with the Buccaneers' loss, the Cowboys ending their season, it's also raising questions about the future of star quarterback Tom Brady. Joining now to discuss all of this, senior contributor Bob Costas. Bob, good to see you tonight. You know, I have to tell you, when we mm -hmm. saw the injury of Russell Gage last night, a comment you've made to me in the past several weeks came to mind. The idea of 
It's possible to make the sport safer, but not entirely safe. And injuries like we saw seeming to be more and more part of the game. And it, I wonder from that perspective, the fact that this is a sport where people are coming to expect, unfortunately, injuries, is the, mm-hmm. are the players protected in their contracts or incentivized to play hurt? Well, there are some contracts, not all, but a great many contracts in the NFL are not guaranteed. Uh, Even if they seem to be multi-year contracts, they're renewable at the team's discretion along the way. Uh, There are some contracts, DeMar Hamlin's was one, as a matter of fact, where you actually receive less compensation if you miss games for being injured, which creates some incentive for players to try and cover up or play through Injuries. Now, in the case of DeMar Hamlin, obviously, the league will foot all of his medical bills. And because he's such an inspirational story, they're going to take care of him, whether he can play football or not. Uh, after this, he'll be an ambassador. He'll have some kind of role. And any injury that's incurred while you're an active player, then the league is responsible for that uh, coverage. However, it's not widely known that you have to play in the league for at least three years to be eligible for post-career medical coverage. And that coverage lasts only five years. And many of the worst effects of playing football, uh, the brain trauma, the, the cognitive decline, the neurological damage, much of that manifests itself only many years down the road. And it's already obvious, it's been proven and the league eventually acknowledged, that a very significant number of its players will have some measure of dementia or Alzheimer's or neurological difficulties, statistically at a much higher rate than the general population. But at least that's known now. Previously, they were in the same position as the tobacco companies, denying any connection between their product and its deleterious effects. Now everybody is advised, and they make their own calculus about risks and reward. There are significant rewards. There are also significant risks. Those risks are brought to mind by the fact that the DeMar Hamlin situation, as rare as it is, was on a nationally televised game. And so was this one, also on a Monday night during the playoffs. But stuff like the gauge injury, not so much the Hamlin situation, but the gauge injury, that is not that uncommon in football. But it just had a larger audience at this point. And what we all have to do is we make our peace with it one way or another. There are some people who will not play, even though they're athletically gifted, or who retire early. There are some fans and some who cover the game who may feel ambivalence about it, but they're drawn by the undeniable drama and excitement, the shared experience. These playoff games recently have been tremendously exciting and interesting. So it's it's kind of a, a dance that people do to varying degrees to reconcile what they have to know by now about the nature of the game with its undeniable appeal. I mean, and part of the appeal in some instances are the actual players themselves who take on a life outside of the sport, obviously. You know, you've got celebrities like, well, Tom Brady, a star quarterback who people are interested Mm -hmm. in his life more broadly, and even his return to football this year alone. I know it's, you know, no one wants to read the tea leaves, have a crystal ball. Those who picked it before ended up being right one week, wrong the next week about Tom Brady Mm -hmm. and returning to football. Any sense of whether he, in fact, will return to the sport given all the factors you just laid out we'd just be guessing i don't think given the fact that 
Tom is a pocket quarterback and he's always been very adept. He's had only one significant injury in his career, that very long career, very adept at avoiding significant contact. I don't think the safety issue would be the major factor in his decision. Uh, no matter what, he's got options, including if he just wants to go sit on a beach somewhere for a year. He's got a television option. Fox has a, a, a contract waiting for him that is stratospheric in nature, even dwarfing his football compensation. Uh, there are teams that will want him to play for them if he feels like he doesn't have as good a shot at the Super Bowl with the Bucks as he once did, where he, came, where he won it once and came close a second time. But this year, they were under 500. There are teams that he could probably uh, go off and, and be part of. Uh, the Las Vegas Raiders have been mentioned. Derek Carr's days as their starting quarterback apparently over. Whether he wants to align himself with the outlaw Raider brand is another thing, given his generally positive image. And the most obvious one would be the San Francisco 49ers, a very good team, still alive in the playoffs. That's where he grew up. That's the team he grew up rooting for. He likes to tell the story of being a little kid and watching Joe Montana at Candlestick Park for the 49ers back in the day. But there's just one problem. The 49ers quarterback, Brock Purdy, the last player taken in the last round of the draft, the so-called Mr. Irrelevant, as they good-naturedly dub the last player taken in the draft, is doing just great. And Brady should be able to relate to that, because unlike Brady's most accomplished contemporary, Peyton Manning, who was the number one pick in the draft and highly touted, Tom was the 199th player taken. Not the last, but close to the last, and then goes on to become the most accomplished quarterback uh, in NFL history. If the 49ers were in desperate need of a quarterback, which apparently they are not, that would be perhaps the perfect closing chapter to go back home where he grew up for the team he grew up rooting for and write the last chapter in his career. But that avenue doesn't appear to be open. Well, a lot of others do, Bob Costas. And I want to point out the, the difference between the future for someone like Tom Brady and to your first point, the idea that many players only get one or two years and are fighting for a chance to even have medical coverage after they leave. Really important point. Thank you so much. Correct. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. Well, look, because of a mega drought in the Colorado River, Scottsdale, Arizona will stop providing water to neighboring communities. And one of those communities who wants the water is now suing to keep the taps flowing. Yes, in this country. Next. Well, there's a fight over water that's heating up between two Arizona cities. Residents of Rio Verde foothills suing neighbor city Scottsdale for cutting off their water. Now, Rio Verde had been buying water from Scottsdale, getting it trucked in, as a matter of fact, from a private supplier until, that is, the first of this year. That's when Scottsdale closed up the tap for the unincorporated neighborhood in an effort to conserve water for its own residents in Scottsdale which they had warned that they would ultimately do. They finally, of course, announced the end of the deal late last year. That's when CNN's Lucy Kavanaugh took a trip to check out the situation. Here she is speaking with one of the owners of a water hauling company that had been delivering Scottsdale supply to Rio Verde. There's no question about it. The drought is reality. Rio Verde is the first domino to fall because of the drought that we're in. Are people taking it seriously enough? They're not. Water is more precious than you realize. And once you go to your faucet and you turn it on, there's no water. <laughs> then its value becomes real. 
Well, I want to bring in two Rio Verde Foothills residents who are now dealing with the lack of water. Christy Jackman and Cody Ream join me now. Welcome to both of you. I'll begin with you, Christy, on this matter. And please jump in in the conversation as well, Cody. Um, How have you been getting water since the Scottsdale water was cut off? You should start with Cody on that one because I actually have a well. You have a well. Cody, how are you getting your water? I'm not getting water. Um, There was one gracious donation by a friend of mine that had access to some water, um, but that um, that met its uh, its uh, you know goal, and and that was that was a one time donation uh, that bought us about a week or two. You know, we're hearing from the New York Times reporting that people are using rainwater, for example, to flush toilets, using paper plates, trying to do anything they can to use less water. I'm curious, Christy, with your well, um, do you still have an impact? Are you still impacted by not having access from Scottsdale, Arizona? I think the impact is on the whole community. There's well homes and there's hauled water homes and we're neighbors and we're friends. And we don't want anybody to go without water. When you look at this, and of course there was the warning, we mentioned this at the beginning, that there had been a warning or a notification, so to speak, from Scottsdale, that there would be a water stoppage. We talked about this back in October of 2021. They also seem to have made it clear back in 2015 that this arrangement of them supplying water, which apparently is actually um, funded by their own residents, would ultimately come to an end. When, when you learned of this, did you take it seriously or thought there'd be some way for them to restructure it, Cody, in a way to allow access to continue? Did, did, they, t- did they send that to me? I, I've never received that from the city of Scottsdale. Um, Have you ever received that, There were offers Christine? made. Um, we have been told that yes, they were not going to continue to supply us forever. But we were also told that if we supplied them with water, they would process it for additional fee. We've met that criteria. We've had two different offers given to them that would completely cover our water and the water usage, and we would pay them to process that. And they are still refusing to work with us. We need cooperation from the city while we get our long-term plan, which is EPCOR, in place. Cody, I cut you off before, but I do want to hear your response, especially to the idea of that you weren't, you were not, you not seeing these warnings. But I wonder how much more money you were having to pay, and or and you had to pay in order to even have access still. Well, I just second what Christy said. Um, you know, there was there was discussion of this, and at the city level, it was always if someone could bring us water on your behalf, then we would process that water. You would pay a fee, and you would continue to be able to receive water at the historic location that you've received it in the past. Um, my water bill will go from approximately $300 a month to over 1100 to $1,200 a month, over five times my electric bill in the summer. So this is unacceptable. This shouldn't happen in this country. Wow. I mean, that, those numbers are stunning. When you think about that, Christy, the, I mean, this is not sustainable. As you mentioned, you, you were talking about a plan? What is the next step here? Is it just waiting to see if there will be cooperation? What is the plan? I mean, there's a lawsuit now, but what is the plan to meet the immediate needs of water? Well, unfortunately, we have to wait for the lawsuit. There is a law in Arizona that's on the books that states that a municipality 
that serves an unincorporated area, water may not discontinue that. And that is what we're asking them to do is to just follow the law. Cody Ream, Chrissy Jackman, we'll continue to think about you and also follow this story. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. For having us. Well, there was an incident that could have ended in a disaster. And that's the understatement of the year. A near collision between two planes at JFK Airport in New York. The new details on the latest headache in the aviation industry is next. So here's a question a lot of people continue to ask, especially recently. What is going on with the aviation industry? Authorities are now investigating what led to a near collision between two packed planes at New York's JFK on Friday. Here's CNN aviation correspondent Pete Muntean. Tonight, there are urgent new questions from investigators and experts following the near disaster on the runway at JFK. The National Transportation Safety Board tells CNN interviews are ongoing after a Delta Airlines 737 and an American Airlines 777 were on a collision course Friday night. American Air traffic control recordings detail how the American flight was told to go to the end of JFK's runway 4 left, but instead crossed that runway in the path of the Delta flight that was taking off. A mistake caught by air traffic controllers with just seconds to spare. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Rejecting. The Delta pilot slammed on the brakes. The FAA says stopping approximately 1,000 feet before where the American Airlines flight had just crossed the runway. It would have been uh, catastrophic uh, had a collision taken place. Former NTSB Managing Director Peter Goles thinks investigators will now dig into whether the fault lies with the pilots of the American flight, apparently confused over directions from air traffic control. The last class we were given, we were cleared to uh, cross. Is that correct? American 106 Heavy, uh, we're departing runway 4 left. Um, I guess we'll listen to the tapes, but uh, you were supposed to depart runway 4 left. You're currently holding short of uh, 3-1 left. After the incident, the American Airlines flight continued on to its destination of London Heathrow. The airline has not said why it did not go back to the gate. In a new statement, American Airlines says it is conducting a full internal review and cooperating with the National Transportation Safety Board in their investigation. There were plenty of visual cues for this flight crew to know that they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Meanwhile, the FAA has not said how it will fix its computer system that failed last week, causing a nationwide ground stop and thousands of delays and cancellations. Sources tell CNN that Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is pushing for upgrades faster than planned. Even still, the FAA has no Senate-confirmed administrator leading the agency. We're going to clear the runway. So there will be an administrator, and that administrator can do his job. There is one issue with the American Airlines flight continuing on to its destination of London Heathrow. Experts are worried that means the audio from the cockpit voice recorder might be lost. Typically, they record for only two hours. The NTSB wants that up to 25 hours, something the FAA has not acted on. Laura? Pete Muntean, thank you so much. And thank you all for watching. Our coverage continues. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.